You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Humanity is at a crossroads. We have ample evidence that Earth is headed for disaster, and for the first time in history, we have the ability to prevent that disaster from wiping us out. Whether the disaster is caused by humans or by nature, it is inevitable. But our doom is not. How can I say that with so much certainty? Because the world has been almost completely destroyed at least half a dozen times already in Earth's 4.5 billion year history, and every single time there have been survivors. Earth has been shattered by asteroid impacts, choked by extreme greenhouse gases, locked up in ice, bombarded with cosmic radiation, and ripped open by megavolcanoes so enormous that they are almost unimaginable. Each of these disasters caused mass extinctions, during which more than 75% of the species on Earth died out. And yet, Every single time, living creatures carried on, adapting to survive under the harshest of conditions. My hope for the future of humanity is therefore not simply a warm feeling I have about how awesome we are. It is based on hard evidence gleaned from the history of survival on Earth. This book is about how life has survived mass extinctions so far, but it is also about the future, and what we need to do to make sure humans don't perish in the next one. Annalee Newitz is the creator of the science website io9.com and the editor of She's Such a Geek, Women Write About Science, Technology, and Other Geeky Stuff. She's written for Wired Popular Science and The Washington Post. Her new book is Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Thank you for joining me, Annalee. Yeah, thanks for having me. This book is so much fun because it has all the feel of a science fiction novel, but it's all true. <laughs> That's the goal. I've been telling people it's kind of halfway between really hard science fiction and science writing. So I've, I'm aiming to have a little of both. One of the things I think that you do very well in this book as a writer is to winnow down a large number of subjects into a 300-page book. And when you're dealing with apocalypse, there have been many more of them than we expected. And that's one thing that we don't often uh, think about when we hear the word apocalypse. We think there's one, it's coming, it's it's either the rapture, an asteroid, or global warming, <laughs> or the whimper. So talk about selecting the apocalypses and discovering them even. Well, I had originally set out to write a pretty pessimistic book. I'm really obsessed with disaster movies and stories about the end of the world. And so I wanted to do basically a nonfiction version of a disaster movie. So I set out to find out what the worst disaster is that could ever happen. And that's how I found mass extinctions, which are, in fact, events where most life on Earth dies out. More than 75% of all life on the planet has to die out for it to count as a mass extinction. And they take relatively little time in geological terms, which is a million years. So it's a long time for us, but, you know, it's a short short period of time for the planet. 
And um, these are events where the planet is completely transformed. I mean, life as, as, as we know it dies out, new life replaces it. And I really, I kind of realized about halfway through researching this book that I was more interested ultimately in the life that survived than in talking about how it all died out because the really interesting stories were the survivor stories. And so I kind of was led through these disasters by the survivors and looking at at what they did. And so first I look at all five of the mass extinctions that have already happened in the last half billion years. Um, And each of those has had a pretty different origin. So we get to talk about volcanoes. We get to talk about asteroid strikes. Uh, even gamma radiation uh, ripping off one layer of the atmosphere, lots of of cool destruction. Um, And then I look at other kinds of smaller scale disasters that have happened to humans, like famines and wars and plagues. Those are less exciting chapters in the sense that they're very depressing because they're much more immediate. And so it's death, death for humans that is within living memory and within historical memory. So I picked those disasters because they were likely to happen again and because the survivors of those disasters left us with really good lessons about how to make it through. I love the organization of this book, and it's so much fun to read. Uh, When we get to the history of mass extinctions, even I didn't know that you could have a 2 billion-year-old fossil. That's just amazing. You get a lot of facts, and I love stromatolites. Yeah, stromatolites are uh, fossils that contain some of the most ancient life forms on Earth. And they look just like balls of rock, and you can't even see the fossil unless you slice the rock in half. And then you just see these little kind of spidery lines. And what those are are the remains of ancient algal mats on top of the ocean. So just mats of bacteria, basically, that would have looked kind of like scum uh, with looks today on the surface of a lake. And those are, are some of the earliest life forms. And they've survived all the mass extinctions. So scum and cyanobacteria, as it's known, are, are actually fantastic survivors who actually have left a number of great lessons behind for humans to learn about how to survive. So be more like scum. <laughs> I've been told that's not going to be such a tough stretch for me. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that interested me about the uh, algal mats, this primordial soup, is that it brought about its own death in what you call an oxygen apocalypse, which sounds like a good thing. It's a good thing for us because uh, what what these algae did, um, which was a fantastic innovation that we've only just figured out ourselves, uh, was that they were photosynthetic. They drew their energy from the sun. So that made them a very successful organism. And it also meant that one of the byproducts of their, basically of their digestive process was oxygen. So they would be taking in photons from the sun, taking in water molecules from the ocean where they were living, and then basically farting out an oxygen molecule, a free, free oxygen, and sorry, an, ox, an oxygen atom. So there'd be free oxygen floating around in the environment. Well, at the time, the environment was very heavily methane-based and was full of what today we would call greenhouse gases. And having a lot of oxygen entering the environment was quite poisonous for all the life forms that 
were there and that had adapted to a methane-based environment. And so over time, basically cyanobacteria polluted the planet with oxygen. And we love that now because we we like when there's like 21% oxygen in the environment. That's a super great thing for our lungs. But it was actually an environmental apocalypse that was caused by this one life form changing the world, basically. So we're not the first ones to change the world with our with our emissions. You also talk about the snowball earth apocalypse from Caltech scientist Kirschwink. T- tell us a little bit about that and how that came about. That was hot on the heels of uh, global warming till oxygen death. Then we go to an ice snowball earth. Yeah, it's a early in the Earth's history, um, the temperature fluctuations were fairly dramatic. And so you did have this very um, hot methane-based world that the cyanobacteria were, were farting around in with their oxygen. And at a certain point, there was essentially a tipping point where oxygen, uh, there was enough oxygen in the environment that these greenhouse gases were being leached out of the atmosphere. And they were being sequestered in rocks and in the ocean. And as that happened, the temperature began to cool. And at the time, and we're talking about, you know, millions of years ago, the sun was dimmer than it is today. So it wasn't able to counteract some of the effects of the cooling uh, that we would see today. And as temperatures dropped, ice began to creep downward from the poles toward the equator And the more ice there was, the more reflective the planet's surface became. And so incoming sunlight, this weaker incoming sunlight, was bouncing back into space, which caused even further cooling. And you got what was called a runaway ice house effect. And the ice reached the equator for sure. We have Joe Kirschvink and his colleagues discovered rocks near the equator that show deep scoring from being crushed under uh, massive glaciers that had that had actually reached, you know, the midpoint in the planet. And there's some debate over whether the equator remained uh, fluid or whether the entire planet was locked in ice. But either way, it was a radical, incredible change. It was basically the planet had become sort of like the moon Europa, uh, which is an ice-covered moon that has a liquid ocean underneath it. And the only way the planet was able to make it out of that phase, and again, remember, this is, you know, over half a billion years ago, was uh, volcanic activity. It's believed now that what happened was enough volcanoes began erupting that carbon entered the atmosphere again. So we got a little bit of a greenhouse from all the carbon from those volcanoes that eventually warmed the planet up. And when that happened, um, you had a heavily oxygenated planet that was warm. And that led to the first real explosion of multicellular life. Uh, We know it now as the Cambrian explosion, uh, named after the Cambrian period. And uh, suddenly, you started getting creatures that were like fish and uh, like like what we know today as as animals. I love all the Flora and fauna of that period is so cool. It's just a giant monsterama as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, lots of tentacles. <laughs> lots of tentacles. One of the things I think you do very well is to take us through some pretty complicated science stuff in a lively manner, get, get all the facts down right, and make it fun to read. And this has to do with your prose style. You must have done reams and reams of research. Talk about boiling down, you know— five people's doctoral thesis into 
four pages of entertaining prose. <laughs> um, well, there was probably a lot more than four people's doctoral theses uh, comprised in this book. So I started out by immersing myself in the scientific literature. So I was reading a lot of scientific articles, and then I would track down the authors of those articles and try to talk to them in person. Um, and I wound up talking to over 100 people by the time I was done. Um, most of them were scientists and historians and engineers. And my my goal really was just to find people who would be willing to sit down and answer questions that normally they don't have to answer. So a lot of times if you're, say, an earthquake engineer, you don't have to answer questions about how will we build cities in 100 years. You're more focused on the next you know year, right? And so there's a certain number of engineers and scientists who are willing to have those conversations. And so I, I had to had to track them down. The process of actually trying to make very complicated scientific concepts into something readable and fun is it's difficult. It's like the hardest part of science journalism. And I can tell you that I wrote and rewrote this book many, many times. The original version of this book was not as um, entertaining, shall we say, <laughs> as this version. And I mean, I, I ended up cutting at least, I mean, I feel like at some point I cut probably half the book um, because I just had so much stuff. And, you know, it turned out I couldn't tell the story of every single life form in every single era as much as I wanted to. So there were there were like a lot of a lot of creatures that didn't um, get their stories told, which was sad. In the end, I think what helped most of all was thinking about really good science fiction and how science fiction authors, when they do try to bring realistic science into their work, how do they do it and how do they connect it with a story? And so I really had that as my guide more than more than anything. That's one of the things I noticed. I think that this is a book that is deeply informed by the science fiction genre. And I'd like you to talk about were there any specific science fiction novels or series or authors whose work you looked at as you put this piece of nonfiction together? Yeah. One of the authors who was very influential and whose work I talk about quite a bit in this book is Octavia Butler, who was a fantastic science fiction writer who wrote in the late 20th century. And many of her books deal with the question of how humans will evolve over time. And I think a lot of science fiction that looks at the future kind of neglects the impact on even just the human form that that time will have. You know, we're going to keep evolving. We're probably at some point going to take control of our evolution through synthetic biology. And so what will that mean for us? And Butler's work, she always deals with transformation as both hopeful but also tragic. She shows humans uh, merging with alien species and reaching the stars but at the same time, it's a struggle. Not everyone wants to change. Not everyone wants to evolve in a particular direction. There's always conflict and fragmentation. And I really hope that I can capture some of that in this book, not just with scientific debates over where we're going, but also very human cultural debates over what we should do next, because there's never an easy answer. And even as we're changing, there's going to be conflict over that. And I think that um, 
people who imagine there's a shining path to one particular future uh, are not thinking realistically about how change works. And so I often find that when I talk to people about one of the points of this book, which is that climate change causes mass extinctions, so we better do something about climate change, people will say, well, you know, no one's done anything about it yet. And, you know, that's because there's a, a there's a, a kind of a strand of thinking that says, once we find a problem, if we don't instantly fix it, we're screwed and we've just messed up. And that's not how humans are. You know, we debate things, we have conflicts over things, we muddle through, but we almost never come up with the instantaneous perfect solution to any problem, especially not quickly. We tend to change generationally over time. And it's unrealistic to imagine that we're going to identify a problem and within a human lifetime fix it. Uh, it just almost never happens. And I think Octavia Butler's work is so um, poignant in that way because she always shows that these changes are long and difficult. Even if the outcome is, is, is a society and a civilization that is living in peace and perhaps even in harmony with its environment, there's a lot of sacrifices along the way. You really make the time argument well in this book because a lot of this book really requires us to ratchet our understanding of time scale back, you know, by a, a, a exponentially by a factor of about a thousand. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I really want people to start thinking in species time. Typical mammal species usually evolve and then go extinct or evolve into a new creature over a period of about a million years. So the average species lifespan for a mammal is a million years. Homo sapiens has been around for maybe 100, maybe 200,000 years. So we're pretty early in our species lifespan, even though we're already just so awesome. Uh, we, We have a long way to go, and we need to be thinking not just in terms of what are we going to do in the next 50 years? But what can we do now to make sure that our species continues to be healthy and thriving in 500,000 years, um, in a million years, and where will we be? And we, we really do have to be looking at that timescale as a species, especially when it's when the planet is at stake, because the planet is thinking in even, well, the planet isn't thinking anything because it's a rock. But if the planet were thinking, like in some, you know, silly James Cameron movie, it would be thinking in terms of millions of years and billions of years. So it's it's important that we remember that and not think that just our puny little lifespans are so important because they really aren't. One of the things that brought this home to me was when you talked about the Ordovician extinction, which we can blame on the Appalachians, the rise of mountains. I mean, this is inconceivable to me. And it's really, the way you write about this is very interesting. So tell us about Seth Young and Pete Sheehan and Adrian Malone and the cosmic rays and this whole series of one bad luck strike after another. (laughs) Well, pretty much every mass extinction has been one bad luck strike after another. And The Ordovician mass extinction, which is the first that we know of on the planet, um, it happened about a little over 450 million years ago, so quite a while. And it's believed, and again, the evidence is uh, difficult to parse because it's so long ago, so there's a lot of sort of complementary theories about what happened. But one theory is that the planet was hit with 
cosmic radiation from a nearby supernova, which means in uh, science fictional terms, radiation fried part of the atmosphere off and would have caused horrible uh, cancers and extinctions among animals that were uh, alive on the planet at the time, but also probably would have caused an ice age because those radioactive particles would have interacted with our atmosphere to make the atmosphere more reflective. So it would have been as if there were a whole bunch of teeny tiny little mirrors um, in the atmosphere, clouds of these little teeny tiny microscopic mirrors that would have reflected sunlight. And that would explain why at the end of the Ordovician we see these really rapid ice ages. We know for sure from the geological record that there were two super fast ice ages that took place in like less than 100,000 years, which in ice age time is like race car level. It's just like incredibly fast. So why did that happen? Um, possibly these cosmic rays. And of course, the ice ages themselves would have killed off tons of life as well, because whenever you have rapid temperature fluctuation, your habitat changes, you don't get access to food anymore, and you die off if you're an animal. Um, However, another possible explanation or a complementary explanation for this rapid ice age is the Appalachian Mountains. And the Appalachians, as we know them now, are actually a second mountain range. There was a previous, it's, it's kind of built on a, they're built, they, they've been elevated above a place where two continental crusts come together. So it's, it's not unusual to have mountains rise and fall in these areas. So, but at the end of the Ordovician, the previous version um, of the, the prequel to today's um, Appalachians were, had, had risen and they eroded really fast. And this is a process called weathering, which we see all the time where mountains are eroded and rocks are eroded and the earth is eroded through wind and rain. And erosion of this nature, weathering, is actually a really fantastic carbon sink because carbon atoms attach themselves to this kind of pulverized rock. Then those rocks wash into the ocean and the carbon in them is sequestered at the bottom of the ocean. So when you have huge mountain ranges that are rapidly eroded, what they're doing is they're basically sucking a ton of carbon out of the environment, and that leaves a lot of oxygen behind, and that lowers the temperature. So it's possible that the not the raising of the Appalachians, but the eroding of the Appalachians was causing this rapid ice age, causing these temperature drops. By the end of the Ordovician, the Appalachians were flat, totally eroded completely. So I think, you know, it's possible we could blame the death of these mountains on on the first mass extinction. Um, It's a really interesting, weird time in Earth history. When you talk about this, I think one of the things that you've done very well is it seems to me that to get this science out, you essentially, you translate it. You're, in many ways, I, I think of you as a as a translator of all sorts of more, you know, very sophisticated scientific concepts. You translate language that's based in journals and, and tell, talk about mirrors, which is something everybody can understand. Yeah. And of course, scientists talk about mirrors, too. Um, you know, I think that it's partly translation and partly interpretation, too. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times... Scientists are focused very hard on one particular question or problem. And so it's hard for someone who is 
really focused in on, say, how do you get a reflective cloud out of an atmosphere that is meeting a bunch of cosmic rays. Like, if that's what you're focused on, it's hard to look at the grand sweep of how all mass extinctions happened and how that'll affect humanity. And so I think it's the job of science journalists to not just translate, but place science in a cultural context and in a human context that that people can relate to. The Devonian period was that was a extinction of invasive species that resulted in a non-diverse environment which is I think all these terms that seem so relevant today yeah it's true um, I hope that people are sensing a pattern here which is climate change leads to mass extinction and at the end of the Devonian period which is about 350 million years ago we see um, a very interesting and unusual situation where there is climate change going on, but what really happens is something that's called a depression in speciation. And what that means is animals and plants and everybody, they're going extinct at a normal rate. So any time in history, you expect some animals and plants and, and other guys to be going extinct because that's just how evolution works. But normally what happens is Species who are around who don't go extinct speciate. They branch out into multiple species. They evolve into new species. And those species replace the species that have gone extinct. So you maintain biodiversity and balance. But at the end of the Devonian period, what you had was the normal extinction rate, but nobody was speciating. So no new species were evolving for a couple of million years the question is why? Why would you see this sudden lack of speciation? And one scientist, Alicia Stigall, who I talked to for the book, suggests that it's from invasive species taking over all of the ecosystems on the planet and making it impossible for new creatures to evolve. You know, you talked about uh, seeing a pattern in this book. And one of the things I think you do very well is by describing the apocalypses that we've already experienced, you set us up for means of solving the one that may be underway now. So are we in the midst of a new mass extinction? Do we know that for sure yet? We don't know it for sure. And one of the things that is both wonderful and frustrating about science is you're never going to get a scientist to say, really, we know anything absolutely for sure, especially when it comes to something like a mass extinction, which has so many factors and takes such a very long time. However, that said, there are a lot of environmental scientists and evolutionary biologists who have seen alarming patterns, one of which is we are undergoing a period of climate change. We know for sure climate change is correlated with mass extinctions. So that's a bad sign if we're seeing that. The other um, warning sign is that we are seeing elevated extinction levels. I mentioned before that there's a typical background extinction rate. You always expect to see some extinctions. But right now, among animals, over the past about 200 years, we're seeing a lot more extinctions than we would expect to be typical. So that's another hint that we may be in the early stages of a, of a sixth mass extinction. One of the things I think that is so much fun about this book are your conversations with all these scientists. And I think you do a great job of interviewing them. And you talked about 100 interviews for this book, which I think is, uh, that's a lot of material. So talk about, do you record them? Do you take notes? And then 
winnowing that down into the quotes we get in the book and the material we get in the book, which is also entertaining. Um, yes, I do record them. In some cases, I took video, especially when people had invented their own machines for studying stuff. I love, love DIY machines. And um, there's a lot of, especially people who do geology, a lot of the time they have to just build their own stuff because people haven't done it yet. So, um, and then I would take notes. And a lot of times, these would be pretty extensive interviews, a couple of hours, often involving a lab tour because people were doing amazing things in their labs. Those were my favorite. And, you know, it's, it's a process like anything else of, of winnowing stuff down and thinking about, well, what are the most salient things that we've talked about? And like I said, a lot of stuff wound up on the editing room floor that I'm, that I'm kind of sad about. Um, but... I think other people can write books about some of the stuff that I've just started to touch on here. So my hope is that this can inspire other people to look at these same issues and, and come up with their own ideas about them and how, how this might take us into a future without mass extinction. Well, one of the things, points you make very well, I think, is that our lifespans are brief. And in our lifespans, in the lifespan of the human race in recorded history, Climate hasn't done very much change. There hasn't been much change, but that's not the norm for the Earth. And so that even if we're not causing climate change, which seems to be definitely the case, that we should be prepared for it because it's going to come whether we are responsible or not. Yeah, and I think that's a, a point that a lot of people miss in the debate about climate change because we're so concerned about where to lay the blame for climate change that we don't recall or pay attention to the fact that if you look back at geological history, we have been through many periods of greenhouses, many periods of ice houses where the planet has become much hotter, much more carbon rich in the atmosphere, or become cooler and more oxygen rich in the atmosphere. So this is a situation where the planet is always going to be going through what are called carbon cycles, where there's either more or less carbon in the environment, which means it's going to be hotter or cooler. And even if we were burning absolutely no fossil fuels at all because we discovered unobtainium like 500 years ago and we were running everything on unobtainium, we would still need to be paying attention to the possibility of climate change because it is inevitable. The carbon cycle functions whether we're here or not. And so it becomes our task as among the better planners uh, on the planet, we're, we're a species that seems to be good at planning for the future, we need to be thinking about what kinds of technologies can we develop to maintain the climate at a level that we find comfortable and that our ecosystems find comfortable, because that's how we're going to survive long term, is making sure that our ecosystems are healthy so we can get food from them and energy from them in a way that's sustainable. So yeah, even like I said, even if we had pure unobtainium engines, we would still be having to worry about climate change. We almost, as you put it, didn't make it at one point. The human race was down to, they think, maybe 10,000 individuals. Yeah, early in Homo sapiens evolution in Africa, uh, roughly 80,000 years ago or so, there's some evidence that there was either a human population crash or there was some other event, possibly a volcano, that spurred humans to start leaving Africa in droves. And at that time, you can see in the fossil record 
that suddenly, you know, there's all these homo sapiens hanging out in Africa, and suddenly we start seeing homo sapiens spreading outward into Europe and the Middle East and Asia. And when they did that, they encountered other humans because, of course, humans actually had been leaving Africa for over a million years. And so Homo sapiens encountered Neanderthals, Denisovans, and probably another group of humans in Asia as well. And these were all humans. They were not another species. And when Homo sapiens encountered them, there were a series of events that only now we're beginning to understand where humans entered these new territories and came into contact for the first time with other kinds of humans who'd been evolving separately from them. And it was a, a period where Homo sapiens ended up being very successful as a survivor species because we were able to adapt to all these different new climates and environments that we encountered. And part of that adaptation, it turns out, based on really recent genetic evidence, is that we actually joined up with those groups of humans that we found. There's now evidence that people with uh, European origins have Neanderthal DNA, which means that when Homo sapiens came out of Africa, they got busy with the local Neanderthals and had babies with them. And so white people are now part Neanderthal, and um, which is, you know, yay for me, I'm part Neanderthal. And uh, it also means that, you know, that vision of what it means to be human really involves uh, assimilating to new cultures as well as assimilating to new environments, which I think is quite interesting. Could you talk a little bit about what you call the founder effect? Sure. Um, I am not the one who calls it that. Um, it's a term from population genetics. And the founder effect is what happens when a group of creatures, let's say Homo sapiens in this case, leaves their original group and founds a new group. Whenever they leave the original group, their genetic diversity shrinks. So each new founder group has less and less genetic diversity than the original group. And the reason why founder effects are so important in the history of Homo sapiens is they allow us to understand the pathway that humans took out of Africa. Because we can look at populations of humans in Africa today and see that they have far more genetic diversity than the populations of humans in the Americas, in Europe, and in Asia. Because what you're seeing is the result of many, many founder effects over thousands of years as Homo sapiens moved out of Africa. And so humans actually now have really low de genetic diversity. Like, it's just kind of nuts. Like, the number of... Um, the number of people who would be required to kind of recreate the genetic diversity of humanity is about 10,000 people. So we're pretty interrelated um, in, a, in a happy way, not in a scary incest way. And um, that is a sign of how much we are a, a kind of invasive species that goes into many, many places and adapts. But it also shows that um, one of our great strengths is... Uh, founding new communities, that we are really, really good at that. We're so good at that that, in fact, most humans on the planet are the result of these brave people who would set out and found new communities just because that's, that's what our species does. And one of the other things that our species does 
is uh, that makes us different is the capability for symbolic thought and storytelling. As despite the the plague of those who would call themselves storytellers, that's <laughs> that's good. We like that plague. <laughs> we like that plague. That's what <laughs> kept us going in the first place. Yeah, um, it is true. As far as we know, humans are the only symbolic communicators on the planet. Um, let's let's be clear that we you know it could be that we'll find out that you know dolphins and chimps have been telling really nasty jokes about us for hundreds of years, um, and I can't wait to hear them. But so far. It seems that humans' capacity for storytelling and for conveying information is part of what makes us such a good animal at surviving. Like, it's part of what gives us strength as animals. When we go into a new environment, we're able to tell each other about what's in the environment, and that makes us adapt to that environment more quickly. So storytelling can be a way of helping us survive, in a, in a sense, as an instruction manual, saying, look... You know, if you want to survive a terrible disaster, how about running away from the disaster and founding a community elsewhere? Um, and how about, you know, uh, reading this book to find out which mushrooms are edible and which caves are good to live in? Um, so humans are able to convey survival skills very quickly because of our storytelling abilities. And like I said, it makes us a good, good candidate for survival. It makes us a very smart and wily animal. As animals, one of the things we are prone to, however, is disease. And you talk to have a, a great chapter talking about our our experiences with disease. And you begin with Chaucer's plague, and, and I, I like the idea of looking at the Black Plague through Chaucer's eyes. Yeah, Chaucer, when he was a kid, would have lived through the first wave of the Black Plague that hit London um, in the 14th century. And so he would have grown up at a time which would have seemed like the post-apocalypse. You have to imagine, here's a kid, he's like seven years old, and in one, flu, in one disease season, basically one summer, 50% of London dies. This is a kid who's grown up in London, and he watches 50% of his, of his fellow Londoners die. Now, imagine if you were in your own city, I live in San Francisco, if 50% of San Francisco died, we would all be convinced that humanity was doomed. Um, and yet, Chaucer and his cohorts did live through this apocalypse and grew up into adults and had to deal with a world that had been completely changed by this mass death. And in the end, what happened was there were a lot of political reforms as a result of the Black Plague wiping out so many people because suddenly peasants could actually bargain for uh, better pay because there were fewer of them and there were a lot of jobs that needed to be filled. And as a result, uh, as I say, peasants were able to organize to get paid better. They serfs were um, released from the land and able to get jobs that weren't tied to a particular estate. And so weirdly, in the wake of the apocalypse, things got a little bit better for the most vulnerable parts of the population. I guess this goes uh, to why you found your pessimistic book becoming strangely optimistic. <laughs> Very <It's> strangely. <laughs> <laughs> the plague is a great thing. Um, no, I don't. It's not really great, but it turned out okay. You have coined this term, survivance. 
I have not coined this term. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the term comes from uh, Gerald Visner, who is a professor of ethnic studies and was one of my mentors when I was at Berkeley. And the term survivance is in some ways the opposite of survivalism. Survivance is the continuity of culture and the ability to continue evolving culturally despite uh, the setbacks and the horrors of a particular historical period. And for uh, Visner, he's talking about, he, he's uh, Indian and he's talking about the history of Indians in the Americas. And for him, survivance is a way of talking about how Indian cultures have survived in a European-dominated continent or continents. And it's about not just the humans themselves surviving, because, of course, there's plenty of people of Indian descent who are running around all over North and South America. But it's also how those people maintain a connection with their cultural history, which is very important for humans because we are animals who think of culture as part of our environment. And so if we can maintain a cultural connection with our ancestors, it helps us imagine a future for ourselves. And so that's why Visner and so many other thinkers who um, have looked at things like genocide and have looked at what happens to groups who are persecuted and and murdered uh, over time in history think a lot about how culture is a big part of survival because being connected to that past is part of what makes us human and gives us hope. You have a a really wonderful example about the Jewish diasporas and how that's a—it is indeed a perfect example of of survivance. It is a good example of survivance because what has happened repeatedly in Jewish history is that I'm a Jew, so I'll just say we've been kicked out of some of the best empires in the world. And for some reason, you know, like the Romans kicked us out and then the Spanish kicked us out and we've just been chased all over the place and and murdered and brutalized. And yet a coherent Jewish community and culture has been retained all over the world. And a huge part of that is through storytelling. And what's interesting is, as I was researching this book, I wanted to know, well, is it just that Jewish stories have survived? Because, of course, it's easy to write stuff down in a book. But it turns out it's not just that. Actually, the descendants of the Jews who were kicked out of Rome about 2,000 years ago have survived in communities, and we can now do genetic studies of those communities and see that their genetic origins do come from Rome. And so actually it turns out that scattering in the face of your enemies and and joining new communities will actually help your, your progeny survive over thousands of years. At the other end of the evolutionary scale, there's the, that ultimate survivor, the cyanobacteria. And one of the things that we learn in this chapter is what, and one of the things I like about this book is what we don't know. We don't know as much about photosynthesis as they would like you to believe in school. Your teachers lied to you about photosynthesis being simple. It turns out that photosynthesis is actually really complicated. I mean, we know the outline. We understand that plants can take in photons and use it to draw energy from water. So we understand that process. But how exactly does a leaf tune light waves? How ex- what is the actual process that that photon goes through as it's absorbed into uh, the vascular system of, of a plant. 
So that is all stuff that physicists are still super eagerly attempting to crack because we would love to be able to reverse engineer photosynthesis and create machines that could that could tune waves of light as efficiently as leaves do and as um, plants do. So there are a lot of groups uh, around the world who are working on trying to crack the mystery of photosynthesis so we can have even better solar power than we do now, much more efficient. And this brings us to another one of the kind of literary things we find in this book. You love acronyms and the group I Cares. <laughs> And uh, run by Hammurabi Pakrasi, you have a, had a fun visit to his laboratory. We have a little picture of him working. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and he's actually, um, Pakrasi is one of the people who is very interested in photosynthesis and has been working with cyanobacteria, trying to turn them into a more efficient energy source. And he's um, out there at um, Washington University in St. Louis. And he works with a large interdisciplinary team of scientists and engineers thinking about how to create more sustainable communities. And so having more sustainable energy is one part of it. Urban design is another part of it. Um, and it's it's a really, um, their group, uh, which is the acronym is ICARES, I did not invent that acronym, <laughs> um, is uh, they are an example of what I consider to be a lab of the future that's really using an interdisciplinary approach to understanding how humans can live sustainably in the environment. One of the points you make in this book, and I think you make it very well, and I really enjoyed this aspect, is when you uh, talk a little bit about uh, the disaster science and how people are doing efforts to ameliorate uh, the damage that earthquakes can do, is that uh, you make the point that there's a cultural aspect to all of this. We can discover all these facts we want. We can even legislate them, but we actually have to obey the laws. <laughs> Um, there is a cultural aspect to all this. When you're talking about redesigning the way humans live in cities, you do have to think about how laws and social institutions like government uh, fit in with just really basic scientific facts about how to build your house better or how to design a city street to be more robust against flooding, for example. So that's where things get complicated. There's There has to be a good interface between cutting-edge science and engineering and um, city governments and state governments and maybe even global uh, organizations as well when you're talking about climate. And I think this is where it gets complicated for humans because we're animals who have culture. And so when we get into the realm of these cultural conflicts, um, that can make it hard to implement stuff that seems really obvious to engineers and scientists and they're sitting around saying like hello just come on like let's just build it and figure it out and and uh they you know then they come up against this kind of mix of opinions in in the cultural realm and so that is um part of what we're tackling all the time with making these changes I love some of your visions of the city of the future, especially the, this kind of biological city that kind of grows out of the ground. And and how close are we to actually having that? You've visited some interesting places. Yes. Um, we are closer to having biological cities than you might think. Um, the vision of the biological city is really a way of thinking about the city as a living organism, as something that is embedded in an ecosystem, not like in opposition to the ecosystem, but actually functioning as part of the plants and animals 
uh, around it. And there's small ways in which our cities are already becoming living cities. For example, a lot of scientists now and synthetic biologists in particular are thinking about ways to bring self-healing materials to cities. And self-healing materials are just materials for building that can actually repair their own damage. So currently, we see uh, self-healing sealants being used on ship hulls. So if a ship hull is, is damaged a little bit or cracked or scratched, the sealant can actually close up and, and erase that damage. And in the future, we might see similar kinds of materials used in concrete. So if your concrete bridge develops a crack, before that bridge collapses under the weight of a bunch of cars, as has happened in, in certain cities around the world, um, you might see it healing itself using um, bacteria that's been modified to extrude glue and calcium to hold that crack together and strengthen the infrastructure. But going forward, farther into the future, like 100 years or 150 years, you might really start to see cities that were partially alive. Um, you might see people building with algae, for example, and using algae as part of water filtration, using algae as lighting, because, of course, one of the lovely things about algae is it can fluoresce and have this kind of beautiful greenish-blue glow. And instead of burning fossil fuels for your light bulb, you would just have glowing algae in your, in your house at night. And so I think the further we get into a future where we understand how to build as part of ecosystems and as part of environments, the more that our cities will look kind of like ruins in a jungle instead of looking like big, tall, glass-skinned alien objects. You describe the city as a process, which I think is a great vision of the city. Yeah, I think all, if you look at urban history, the cities that have survived the longest, if you look at places like, say, Rome or Istanbul or Mexico City, which are places that have been civilizations for very long periods of time, the way that they have maintained civilization is by always changing. You know, there's a regime change and they get new populations and they maintain their integrity. They rebuild. They continue by constantly shifting uh like I said, both population as well as building styles, as well as maintaining old buildings. And that's part of what makes a city vital. It's part of what makes our species vital, too, is that we're always changing and evolving. One of the things you say when you talked about Octavia Butler it was that her goal and yours in this book was to get us off the planet. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. Um, we need to get to space. Um because, first of all, in the long term, the planet is dangerous. It turns out that living on a giant rock that's floating through space, especially a giant rock that has a lot of superheated liquid rock in its core, um, can just be deadly no matter what you do. So we could, you know, deal with our climate change problems, but still be subject to the whims of supervolcanoes. Uh, we could be smacked by radiation or uh, an asteroid from space. So in order for humans to survive in the long term, we're going to have to start building human cities on other worlds or maybe in artificial worlds that we build ourselves in space, like big halo worlds or something like that, or Dyson spheres or name your favorite giant space object. And that's just for our long-term safety. So I think it's fantastic that we have space programs now 
where we are starting that exploration of other worlds, first with robots and, you know, one day perhaps with humans, and getting us accustomed to thinking about our solar system as a neighborhood and that and getting accustomed to thinking about our goal as being spreading beyond Earth into other places. Uh, that said, there's a lot that has to happen between now and then. I don't think we're going to have cities on Mars in the next 100 years. Um, if we do, yay. <laughs> I'm not opposed to it. But I think we need to develop a lot of technologies before then uh, in order to make that possible. We may need to re-engineer our own bodies to make us adaptable to new environments on other worlds. We may need to re-engineer other worlds to adapt them to us. Um, these are all technologies that are out of our reach right now. So I think it's important for us to be thinking about these problems and exploring space as much as we can so that when those technologies do develop, we already have a lot of data about what it's like on other worlds. So we can start building there as quickly as we can. Um, but again, I think we're talking about a timescale of you know, hundreds of years, if not thousands, before that will really come to fruition. But we have time. Remember, we have a million years. Well, one of the things I think a book like this does is to do a lot of the cultural work and to talk about a lot of the cultural details and to present the science in terms of culture to culture to say these changes are going to happen. You better at least understand that there, these are the, your options. There are places we could go in the future. Yeah, I think that the main message that I hope people come away from this book with is that humans are going to survive just purely based on the traits we have as animals. We live at a high population size. We're very adaptable. If there is a horrific disaster, if the climate becomes almost unlivable, we are still going to be here. So the question is not, will we survive? The question is, how will we survive? What kinds of plans will we make now? What kinds of things will we study now so that our progeny in 200 years have a relatively comfortable life instead of having to live in caves eating worms, which eating worms is great, but it should be optional. It shouldn't be mandatory. <laughs> um, and that's that's really my hope is that people can can look at this book as a as a very, very early beginning to thinking about um, how we're going to survive better. This is a book that's the first word in a very long conversation that will stretch over geological time. Yeah, exactly. Probably like the billionth word in that conversation, <laughs> right? Like I didn't originate it, but I think, yeah, this is going to be a million-year conversation. I've been speaking with Annalee Newitz. Her new book is Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Thank you for joining me, Annalee. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.